Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Clyde Tennant. Clyde is a partner in Foley's Milwaukee office with a practice focused on a broad spectrum of corporate transactional matters, including mergers and acquisitions, fund formation, and securities reporting and compliance. In this discussion, Clyde reflects on growing up in Norwalk, Connecticut, attending college at William & Mary, earning his MBA at the University of Connecticut, and earning his JD from Columbia Law School. And over 50 episodes into the path and the practice, I can say, I still really enjoy doing this show because of stories like Clyde's. As you will hear, his path between college and law school was not a straight line. In fact, there's almost a decade between him graduating from college and him deciding to attend law school. In this episode, he shares the various careers he had and setbacks and side stories that created his path that eventually led to him being a partner at Foley and Lardner. There's a number of really hysterical things that he says that I would love to preview for you now, but I won't because I don't want to spoil the show. But I will just say, I think you are really going to enjoy the energy that Clyde has, the perspective that Clyde brings. And I think in addition to hearing just how unique and interesting his legal path was, you will really appreciate his perspective on building his corporate practice, the importance of empathy, and just really understanding that your clients are people, and that those are the underpinnings of him having such a successful transition to Foley as a lateral partner. Additionally, Clyde shares some wonderful insights on the Black community of attorneys in the Milwaukee area who embraced him when he moved from the New York area to Wisconsin a number of years ago. And also Clyde gives just some wonderful advice on the importance of keeping a healthy perspective on your career. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation with Clyde just as much as I did in recording it. Clyde, welcome to The Path and the Practice. As usual, we're just going to jump right in and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. Sure. Thanks for doing this. This is fantastic. I feel like I'm I'm coming into the new millennia finally. I'm Clyde Tennant, and I am a transactional partner attorney. What is all I mean? I'm a deal junkie. Uh, if anyone wants to buy or sell anything, I am more than happy to be right involved and help them negotiate it, do some diligence on it, make sure it makes a lot of sense, and and help you know hopefully to kind of come to a a, a great meeting of the minds and get get the, the awesome deals done. That's that's what makes me jazzed. I love that. And I love that energy around that. As a, you know, at the listeners well know, as a former litigator, I wouldn't have given such an exciting explanation of doing deals, but you're a deal. This is exciting stuff. We're going to talk about some exciting stuff today. <laughs> um, but before we do, before we get to the part of how it is and why it is you can describe yourself today as a deal junkie, let's start somewhat at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, Norwalk's about 50 two miles or so east of New York City. I call it my small little town. It's probably 80 or 90,000 people, but it was a fantastic place to grow up. Super, super diverse, super, super blue collar, and just a fantastic place to grow up. And I want a snapshot of childhood. Are there siblings? What are are you into? If I found you in middle school, what, what is middle school Clyde doing? I am the most affable nerd slash um, wannabe good athlete that you'll ever meet. So I'm the oldest of two. I have, I have a younger sister, and we are fairly spread apart in eight. So she's five years younger than me. So in some ways, we were kind of like two single children in, in some respects. But we get you know fantastically close now, which is good. But that back then it was uh, just a fantastic growing time. I grew up. I was born in '72. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that, but just for context, I'm really, really like it an 80s baby, you know, and so, you know, the typical stuff, latchkey kids, every, you know, most people that grew up with their parents were divorced, mine stayed together. Um, I'm very fortunate of that, but it was a fantastic time to grow up, you know, everything from different strokes to Three's Company to <laughs> Martin Lawrence. <laughs> well, I, have to, I have to go back to this affable nerd and many, it, it shouldn't surprise listeners or surprise you, Many of the attorneys on this show, when I asked them what type of kid they were, 
they describe themselves as either bookish, nerdy, <laughs> or really like school. <laughs> and that's not everybody, but I would say it's well over half. And so I always get a kick out of that because I think in some ways, um, by going to law school and becoming a lawyer, you end up connecting with a lot of people who are sort of wired similarly to you. I mean, we might, we're all a little bit different, but there is a personality type. Absolutely. <laughs> no question about it. When I was in law school, I had um, I had the distinct pleasure of actually working in a public defender's office in Norwalk. And one of my very first days, I go into the internship, and I'm I'm still in law school, so I have zero, literally zero, you know, experience at all at all actually doing it. But I walked in, and the lead defender sort of introduced me to the round of clients. And among the room, there are probably like you know six or seven people that I knew, not a casual base, like I knew very well from growing up that were going to be clients for the day. And I didn't know exactly how that was going to be perceived by by my boss in in the internship, um, but it was a really I had a lot of friends that made different choices or anything, but they rooted they were rooting hard for me the same way I was rooting for them. And so you know whether I was the guy at the end of the bench that would you know slap them five when they came off of the court, or I was a guy that was hopefully going to help them get off. Whether the case, I've kind of been able to. Uh, it, it's been a sort of a part, distinct part of my story, that there's a lot of folks around me that um, had a great village and all of us kind of turned out differently. But I, I definitely played more of like the the uh, the Urkel role within my crew. <laughs> the Urkel role, that's nice. <laughs> Family Matters throwback. But also you've touched on a few things and we'll see how much we dig into it throughout the course of our, our discussion. But also you're a, a black male, you know, equity partner. You've navigated this as a, you know, a black man in large law firms. And so I think some of the things you talked about are, you know, definitely highlighted some dynamics and some experiences. And we'll see how much we're able to, you know, dig into that. But that's really, really interesting. And I feel like we have a big gap to close because there is some distance between Connecticut and now Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I know, you know, you spent some time in New York, both in law school and practicing, but let's let's walk up to that a bit. So first I do have to know sports. What what were the sports you liked? And what were the aspirations that like just what they just didn't work out? Just Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, so grow, growing up, I was strictly a, a basketball player and a baseball player. Um, I played I played football a little bit in high school, but I was probably probably the worst person ever to put on pads in football. I have three boys, and they all play football very well. So I tell them all the time, you know, the, you must get out of that from your, your mother's side of the family. But you know, growing up, you know, there was that was you know that was super 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 important to me. My dad was coached coached me in little league and baseball, and that was very special in that he had very, very high expectations of me. He wasn't very like a warm and fuzzy kind of coach. You know, he'll still remind me now at my current age, you know, about different plays that I blew at 11 years old. <laughs> um, he hasn't gotten quite over him or anything, but it's really, really good time together. And like, I'm lucky to have it. That's amazing. I imagine him, you know, seeing some of now his grandsons playing and he kind of elbows and he's like, Clyde, why couldn't you have done that when you were his age? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And this, I mean, his, his, his memory is uncanny. He'll say, you know, oh yeah, you know, Jack did this or Clyde did this and everything. Why couldn't, why couldn't you do that? And I'm like, oh, you right, know. He's like, you were in seventh grade. <laughs> it was September 22nd and you just blew that, but whatever it was. Uh, <laughs> um, well, tell me more about as you're, you know, in high school, thinking about college, what was that process like for you? What was the thought process and where did you go? Sure, sure. So I was probably from grade school until I was about 16 years old. I only ever really envisioned myself being a, a doctor for whatever the reason. I, I, you know, well, other than hopefully playing in the NBA, you know, before my physician career. But uh, I only really saw myself in that. And then I got a, a really neat opportunity when I was 16 to be a U.S. Senate page. So I went down to Washington D.C. And lived there for um, the, the fall semester of my, of my junior year, and just kind of being in the middle of that, the mayhem. It's it's it was wasn't at the level of sort of partnership that it is today. It was certainly a much more collegial place, but you know, kind of you know, kind of see a lot of you know my heroes, the, you know, at least politically heroes, you know, from Ted Kennedy to you know different people who had just done so much. You know, young you know John Kerry as a junior senator from Massachusetts, um, my sponsor, who was a gentleman named Lowell Weicker, Senator Lowell Weicker. So that really changed my whole life. Because because those are lawyers, right? Yeah, a lot of them are lawyers. Absolutely spot on. And so I really, as I sort of, I got to talk to senators, you know, quite frequently, and and you know they were smitten with my my youth and uh, you know my youthful exuberance, and uh, so they definitely encouraged me. And, and in fact, Senator Steve Sims um, actually wrote 
uh, one of my, my recommendations for me to go to Columbia Law School. So it was a really, really impactful time. And from that point forward, I wanted to, to really be a lawyer. Didn't really know what the path was going to look like, but that, that was sort of the goal. And so I went to the College of William & Mary for undergrad down in Virginia, fantastic school founded in 1693, and had a very, very good experience. But candidly, I just, I just goofed off too much, Alexis. I really didn't put the work in. And so did not have spectacular grades. I applied to go to law school directly out of William & Mary, applied to two schools that shall remain nameless, but I will say that they are tier three, four, or maybe even five wow. schools wow, yeah. that both flatly rejected me. They just said, no, good luck, not for you. So I had to come up with a new game plan. And so out of undergrad, I went and worked in New York City doing a lot of stuff with youth. So I worked for the Police Athletic League. I used to run after-school programs in about 60 different schools in New York. I ran summer camps all over the city, what they call play streets, where they you know cut off either end of a block and open up the hydrants. And absolutely loved it. I was a monster for having fun and played hoops with a lot of kids, you know, did did homework with kids and next had to do a lot of admin, et cetera. Got to know some of the city council members and help, you know, sort of pitch them to kind of put a lot more money into the streets in New York, which was fantastic. And again, just overall had a exceptionally good experience doing that until I was in my I guess my mid-20s. At that point, I decided that I really wanted to have some stuff, materially stuff. Um, and so I wanted yeah, to- like you're enjoying what you do, but you're like, nice if I could buy a couple of things. Just <laughs> right. like a, you know, right. just a TV maybe. Right. Or- That's right. <laughs> CDs are probably about $16.99 at that point. So you know. expensive. <laughs> can, wait, we can need to, need to pause on that for one second because I think with, you know, all of us have Spotify and all these ways of streaming music. There was a time where, except for the radio, if you wanted to hear something, you had to go buy a tape or a CD, and definitely tape CDs were not cheap. <laughs> you should not be making life decisions at Tower Records. You know, what I mean, like that was really, truly was. Do I eat this? Do I eat today, or do I do I get you know do get the you know new Jay Z album? That, that was that was a tough stress. Three three CDs was like forty five <laughs> fifty bucks. So I apologize if we are both dating ourselves for the you know. There's definitely some twenty somethings in law school listening, but just understand that was a real motivation. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I was I was broke and I and I thought, you know, what what's the next step? And I and I loved what I did, but really tried to trying to find the next step. I was really fortunate. I was actually putting on um a youth workshop and one of the speakers was a gentleman named Paul Watkins. Paul is a or was a very sort of very long-term executive in a company based out of Wisconsin that did commercial print. So they're like a multi-billion dollar ink on paper company for magazines and catalogs. And so after talking with Paul a while, he, he, you know, he just really encouraged me to consider doing something that had zero interest or background in, but that might be a good bridge for me to kind of the, to the business world. So I joined Quad Graphics in uh, 1997, I guess it was. Gosh, came out to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, packed up my. my packed We're up getting my some some Milwaukee, some Wisconsin yeah, connections. Absolutely. Yeah, so that that was that was my first foray into the Midwest. I'd never really been further west than Pennsylvania in my whole life, and I came out to Wisconsin for my my big adventure. I had a very good experience and really kind of learned sort of the, the nuts and bolts of business from the from the ground up, um, which was good. Quad made me so attractive, in fact, that I then got uh, recruited to another company that in the competitor in the same space on the East Coast um, and went to that company uh, in uh, 99 and sort of still stayed working in the, the print space for a number of years and got my MBA at night. So I uh, really, really, really liked the work, did really, really well in business school. Mm. And I'm guessing the thought was, you've been exposed to business now. Let me go ahead and get a higher level degree with a business focus. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. I was fortunate to have them pay for me to go to school, but it really helped me. And so I was sort of climbing in my my finance-related career in uh, 2002, became a dad for the first time. And so we had the, at, the, at that point in time, the... Uh, the uh, lottery, I forget it was Powerball, Mega Millions, one of the two got really, really big. But things are going well. I was, you know, a homeowner. I was married. I was now a dad. And you could afford CDs. You I could afford I, CDs I and more. <laughs> <laughs> I had plenty of CDs at that point. It was, life was good at that point. So. Yeah. And when the Powerball got really big, I talked to my wife and said, you know, you know, what, what would you like to do if we win? And so she kind of gave me her wish list. And 
And I told her that I, I probably would go back to law school, which, which floored her because she knew kind of, you know, that that was part of a path long ago. But, you know, we were kind of, we were already set in autopilot sort of for life and everything. And so with her encouragement, really, she said, you know, like, if you're serious about that, she's like, Trey's little now. Now's the time. Like, if you want to miss out on some diapers and stuff, you know, you want to be available when it comes to Little League and all stuff. But this is a time to to do, you know, to do you. I love that. She looked at you and she was like, I'm sorry, honey, we don't have to wait to win $500 million <laughs> yeah. or whatever yeah. it was. That's right. That's right. I mean, just a little bit of perspective sometime and encouragement could mean all the difference in the world. So I did that. So Trey was born in 2002 and 2003. I enrolled at uh, St. John's going to law school at night, did that for a year and did exceptionally well. Did so well, in fact, that my teachers encouraged me to consider applying and transferring to a, a full-time program. So Columbia ended up being a, a good landing spot for me and the rest is, is history. Wow. So to speak. And were you living in New York State at that point or what how did that work with yeah your family and where you lived? Yeah, no, we had to, I had a I had a beautiful house in Connecticut. So I commuted in from in uh in from Connecticut to Harlem every day. Put a lot of miles on my car the first year and then the set the second year that I did the train in and out of to the city. But uh by the time I was a second year, I had my second son, Jack. By the time I wrapped up the third year, Sean was born. And so things uh, things, things, things progressed quickly. <laughs> That's amazing. But also for so many reasons. Yeah, the idea of juggling three small children at any point during law school, I think for most of us, just is like a bit, bit mind-blowing. But also to reflect on what you said earlier about having applied to law school. You know, I, I know everyone caught it, but let's just say that one more time. You applied to law school straight after undergrad and as you indicated, some of the schools at the bottom of the ranks were like, no, Clyde, we're not interested. Cut to you at Columbia, you know, a number of years later. Yeah, no, what a what a great experience. It was so many fantastically smart students. And I would say that, you know, I was older than than most and certainly had a lot more experience than a lot of students, but everyone kind of just really bring in the heat. And it was a really, in a non, it wasn't sort of a super you know, competitive sort of sense. It was just a great place to be with people, you know, that are doing some amazing things now. And I keep in touch with quite a few of them, but, you know, did well in the classes, really, really enjoyed it. But really just the, it was one of my favorite parts of my whole life, actually, you know, particularly just learning and, and really kind of engaging, you know, stuff that you, you, take for granted while you're there. Um, but some of my, you know, favorite times just really sort of chopping up and thinking about like, what does this actually mean? Real world? What is this, you know, talking about things that, you know, constitutional law matters that, you know, candidly, I don't deal with in my professional career, but this were just so captivating and interesting to kind of chop it up with. Um, I just loved it. Well, and law school was a minute ago and you just reflected a lot on why it was a great experience, but in terms of adjusting to that academic rigor that you've talked a little bit about it, but were there other things? Was it fine in, in terms of how classes, you know, the Socratic method, did you did you take a moment to adjust? But it sounds to me like you're in like Superman mode at this point because you're commuting, there's multiple kids being born or being raised and you're going to law school. I don't know if it was something, and, and it's a sacrifice for your family too. So I'm certain you treated it took yeah. it very seriously. No, absolutely. One one of my classmates one time said, he goes, it must be so, it must be so lucky for you. I forget the way he put it, but I'm going to paraphrase it. It's so lucky for you, Clyde, that you have, you know, so many other things going on. So like, you don't have to worry about this. Like, you know, it, and I, I took great offense to it at the time because I was like, I'm kicking your butts in this class and everything. And it's not because, <laughs> it's not just because I have perspective or anything, but it's, it is a great sacrifice. Like I could, you know, I was, I went from working full-time first year, then I stopped working for two years. And so there wasn't really, from my, in my mind, I didn't really have the option to kind of mail it in. I really had to work as hard as I could. But I did, you know, it, it did give me a little bit of perspective in that. I went in thinking I wanted to practice law, but I always had in the back of my mind, if it didn't really, if it really things didn't work out, I could always go back to finance and make a fine living for the rest of the night. So, I mean, that might've been helpful marginally, but it was really, really good to kind of mix it. And then to, after my first year, I got uh, a summer internship with, with uh, Kravass Wayne and Moore in New York to then actually go and actually do, I mean, to do the law and to kind of work with people who are sort of really capable at it. Again, it was incredibly, it was like inspiring, but it was also like, 
it validated a lot of what I had had suspected, you know, when we were thinking about, you know, buying Powerball power tickets or not. I was like, this this was actually the right decision. I think that's great that the Powerball is an integral part of your story. <laughs> about what You're like, okay, first you have to understand there was a really big Powerball jackpot. And then you can say the rest. <laughs> um, no, but that makes a ton of sense. But I think for everyone, whether or not it's, you know, family demands or other demands, when your time is um, limited, it can cause you to focus in a way that you know, you're like, this is now the time that I will study because this is when I have to study versus, you know, when you kind of have all the time, you just kind of can putz around. Another episode for people who want to hear about somebody, there's a number of our lawyers on the show who actually have raised children during law school or went back. And so one person that comes to mind is a good friend of mine at the firm, Larry Perlman, who is a doctor, and then went back to law school after practicing for about for three years, but that's post-residency and all the other stuff. Similar thing where his wife was like, if you're going to do this, you need to do this. They had their second child during law school and we went to law school together. And I remember being like, oh, you had a baby. That's great. See you next week. Like it didn't occur to me that that was hard because <laughs> I was all of 23, 24. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, but tell me more about that experience, you know, summary at Cravath, but in general, and also having worked in the financial sector, and we didn't talk a ton about it, but did you have a sense for the type of law or your interest based on that experience? Right. Well, it was, it was, I think that it was actually more presented to me. When I went into law school, I was completely open-minded and I always encourage people, like, if even if you have like some sort of preconceived notions about what you want to do, like explore stuff, because I, I definitely sort of, I saw myself more as probably the litigator type approaching law school. As I got into school and actually started taking some coursework, it was, it was evident to me that there were a lot of things that I kind of understood at least just from, you know, just by way of background. So if, you know, if I had already negotiated, you know, a revolving credit agreement, I had, you know, I had done work for a company, an acquired company that came out of, emerged out of bankruptcy. So a lot of the, you know, the things that were, seemed like just sort of big, broad concepts or anything in class or anything, I actually had already, I'd already lived through some. You had some, you had some context. So when I pulled you up on LinkedIn, I saw that, you know, you spent some time at Dun & Bradstreet. I've heard of Dun & Bradstreet. There's some sort of maybe a Dun & Bradstreet number, but I have zero context for, for what that, so I do think that's really, really useful because I think so much of early in your career as a lawyer is just trying to figure out what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And and exactly right. And so, you know, being able to talk the lingo and, and, in, you know, and I found in the interview process that firms just initially sort of all had to take that. Okay, you must want to be a transaction lawyer because you, you know, you you've got the MBA, you you know, you understand this and everything. And I didn't initially. I, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to uh, sort of discourage them from that notion or anything. But I said, okay, well, you know, I'm I'm open. I'm open to exploring things. But I really thought I'd be more of a litigator. But once I actually got to work, it was so much more interesting, candidly, than I actually remembered. So negotiating deals as a as a business principle is very very similar to being a lawyer. I could say it can be very similar or anything, but it's also very different because you are relying upon so much. So to, you know, to, you know, to give the example, like if Tiger Woods and I were to go out to a golf course right now and I were, you know, as, as his caddy kind of say, okay, I think, you you know, Tiger, I think you should use a seven iron here, et cetera, anything. And I might be actually better positioned than him even to kind of make that decision as, as his advisor, but ultimately he's got to take the shot. And so as, as a business principal, you're, you're kind of making gut decisions, et cetera, and you're, you're driving the bus in many regards. But it's different to be the person that someone actually has to rely upon. It actually really has to, you know, particularly in areas where they're not equipped to kind of make the best decision. So not a good analogy for Tiger Woods because he'll know much more about golf than I ever Well, it's a a decent (laughs) analogy in that swapping myself knows nothing about golf. I truly do need to rely on you for what I should (laughs) use. So I would be really trusting you as my advisor because I have no idea. And I think... Um, I can imagine, of course, I've never found myself in the position of advising a client who wants, you know, who's going to buy or sell something. But depending on the size, you can have very large companies that don't, for whatever reason, have, you know, sophisticated internal legal when it comes to M&A. And they're very much relying on you in terms of how to structure this and, you know, what we should be concerned about. Absolutely. And, and you, you know, you hit it right ahead. I mean, so many people, this is, this is their job. So, you know, it's very... 
I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. You know, there are a lot of people internally, whether it be business principals or, or other, in, you know, internal counsel. However, this works out, and whatever advice we give them, they will be judged internally, and it'll determine a lot of what you know their future plans or their future career plans. You know, what school did their children go to? And so, while it can be, you know, certainly daunting, and you know, it can kind of hit you. If you let it hit, you can hit you with like a you know like a sucker punch. You really kind of feel the weight of it. But if you just sort of take it with that level of seriousness and actually you know really appreciate like what you can actually really mean to them, I've been very blessed and fortunate. Very very loyal long term clients that have have come with me through multiple firms now. And I think that a lot of that really has to do with sort of the relationships. You know when when they they needed input the most or anything, you know, I helped them make the tough, the toughest decisions. I, I gave them my truly unvarnished view. I, you know, have to as a lawyer, you have to kind of advise them of the risk and tell them, you know, this could go wrong, that could go wrong, and here are all the terrible, you know, things could happen. But this could also go right. And if it does, you know, don't lose sight just because I'm the a worry work, don't lose sight of that. That's what your goal is. And so being able to sort of tell them, that, you know, to give them the, you know, give them enough information to make, you know, an informed decision, but not, not scare them into, you know, crawling into the hole is kind of a dumb. Yeah. Well, and you sound really, you know, deeply empathetic as well as very focused on relationships. And we're definitely going to spend a little bit more time on that as we talk about, you you know, joining Foley and, and your practice. But I want to close the gap a bit. So we know Columbia, we know Summerdeck Cravath. I'm assuming you, you started there. Just give us a little bit of an overview of your overall all path that that led you, you know, to Foley and Lardner a couple of years ago. Sure, sure. So you guys, I was at Cravath. I was at Cravath from uh, 2006 into 2009. Really, they, you know, very good broad training program, and so they're they're sort of well known for, you know, high profile transactional practice. But probably the the the, the key to it is really is that they kind of they do a really really great job of sort of training people up and so that was a very good experience after after spending you know being there over three years i did want to work closer to home and so kelly dry had an office so i commuted from connecticut to new york every day for for my period of cravath but then at, at one point i decided it'd be a little bit better for my life to actually be work closer to home so kelly dry had an office in stanford connecticut that i worked at for a number of years and in 2013, I guess it was, gosh, time flies. My boys are getting a little bit older. We kind of had another epiphany moment between my wife and I and said, you know, here's what we have set aside for them to go to college. Here's what our mortgage is. Here's what all our other expenses are. Something's got to give, or we need a better financial planner, or we need to invest in Bitcoin or something. Some, some, or go, something. Back to play, go back to play the lottery. <laughs> right, or play the lottery. Right. So play the lottery. <laughs> Um, and so we decided we needed to be in a, a better, lower cost living place. And so I thought about a lot of different locations. Atlanta was sort of high on list. Dallas was sort of high on list. Middle of Maryland was actually a high on list. But ultimately decided to come back to Milwaukee. And so that was um, my wife had been, I'd met her when I was here the first time. And she came back with me to Connecticut for the first or 15 years of our marriage or whatever, it was a good time to make a move. And, and I thought it'd be best to do that. So I got actually interviewed with a different firm here in Milwaukee and got an offer and actually gave my resignation to Kelly Dry. But they they fooled me in that when I, I gave my notice, they said, well, you know, number one, we think you're doing a fantastic job and, and you may not know it, but we know it. You're about to make partner in a couple months. So I'm sorry, they say we politely declined your resignation. <laughs> they said we would like to make you partner. <laughs> absolutely. So they, they did a George, they pulled a George Costanza mind trick on me. I tried to break up with them and they said, no. No, we're getting married. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so they, they told me, yeah, you're going to make partner a few months. So if you consider, and I said, well, the other sort of quirk is I want to live in, I'm going to live in Milwaukee. So there's no office there. And they said, well, the world's changing. So you can, you can work remotely. There's airplanes, there's computers <laughs> and telephones. Absolutely. <laughs> So I signed on to that and, and and did that, loved it. And, and and so I made partner at Kelly Dry in 2014 and things were going fantastically well until a group of partners that I had built the practice with at Kelly Dry all the, they decided it was a very good time to make a move. There were some internal politics things that I didn't really appreciate. Well, always dynamics, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we were kind of, we you know, we'd kind of formed into a, a somewhat of a package at that point in time. And so we all decided to go to a firm called Withers, which is, they're, they're based out of the UK, but they have, they do have a US presence as well. And so I joined Withers in 2015 as a partner. 
brought over our clients from from there and really got withers their sort of their sort of sweet spot was a very different specialty than most firms they are focused really on sort of high the ultra high net worth individuals so a mike bloomberg type or you know sam walton that you know that's sort of their sweet spot and they thought they brought us on really to provide transactional advice for some of their high net worth net worth um clients which was again really great opportunity very unique circumstance and things went really well and and over that time my practice sort of grew and then and candidly kind of grew a little bit bigger than i thought withers was able to kind of really house at one point so it was a really really tough decision a lot of the, the you know the past te- the, the, the 10 years before i joined foyley i'd really spent a lot of time working in particular with one you know mentor of mine that was really really key in my development and built the practice and you know helped us grow his practice into a, a really sizable sizable book but i decided that for my own you know for my own sort of career path you know he was my mentors uh probably 15, 16 years older than me. So he's in a different sort of, you know, different spot in his career. And I yep, thought different that it, phase. Yeah, so it was time for me to make a move. And I talked to a number of firms here in the area, but Foley is sort of far and away, you know, certainly the best, most respected here firm. And obviously it's pretty well respected nationally as well. So it was, it just ended up being a perfect fit for me to make that jump. Wow, and obviously we're delighted to have you. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about lateraling to Foley, as well as just your philosophy of client relationships. But I want to get you to go into a little bit detail about your practice. You've said the word deals. We've talked about advising clients. And I've had other corporate um, transactional lawyers in the podcast, of course. But frankly, it's been a minute. And not everybody listens to every episode, which is so strange. I don't understand why they don't, but they should. But um, tell me what it means when you say you're a deal junkie. And it's that question that I know law students give you that are like, so what do you do? What is your practice? How do you how do you answer that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and it's evolved over time. So initially I used to when I first started, I was actually literally within the first two weeks I started practicing law, I closed in the first IPO I ever worked on. So an initial public offering is just one example of, of a capital raising activity the company might do. So so if you can imagine, you know, Facebook or Twitter or any of these, you know, sort of, you know, huge companies decide that they are at the point in the company's history where they're ready to go to the public markets and, and raise capital. We sit right in the middle of that. All that and we make sure that they comply with the securities laws. We also kind of help them draft disclosure so in, in investors know exactly what they're actually buying into and they don't have any liability for doing that, you know, negotiate with underwriters, et cetera. And so that's sort of one example. Another example of a transaction that, that I do a lot of is, is you know, generally call it MA, but sort of all, all sorts of mergers and acquisitions. So, so for example, a client of mine, as we speak, is, is looking at, at a company that very different industry than their focus. You know, they have, there are some compliments, you know, complimentary aspects of that company, but they're, they're learning about the company they want to buy at the same time I am. So literally real time, I help them kind of evaluate what are the regulatory implications of buying this company in this particular space. They do some things that are, you know, have a high level of innovation. So, you know, how are we going to protect your rights as the buyer of this company to all this innovation that they've created over the past three years? How are you going to make sure that what they've told you about the, that the business is actually true? And to the extent that it's not true, like what is, what's going to be the recourse for that? And so helping them negotiate and sort of, you know, sign up agreements that, you know, it can be very basic as a purchase and sale agreement, or it can be super, super complicated, like a, I did a, what they call a, a double dummy merger, um, a few years back where, you know, took, you know, essentially to two public companies and, and inquired them at one time. And so, you know, th- those those type of transactions are kind of the second bucket of deals I do. Some are sort of just straight loan agreements. So whether as as, as a borrower or a lender, so not, not too much different than a car loan or a house mortgage, just a lot more zeros. And so negotiating those as well. And then the last piece of, you know, what I've done become recently is really become um, an advisor to, to many funds. And so part of the the clientele base that I built up, I, I had spent a lot of time working with public companies doing all the stuff that, that I was describing before. And then during, during my time at Withers, I, I was actually introduced to a lot of people who were starting brand new funds. And so they're different private investment vehicles and they go out and they seek investors that can, you know, can afford to 
really take you know a little bit higher higher risk you know bets if you will and they they meet the sophistication requirements and so i helped them actually pull together you know their investment vehicles their disclosure documents so the investors actually know what they're buying into and then all all sort of related partnership agreements and that's that's becoming a growing part of my practice um, both for just traditional investors as well as for family offices well, and when I read your bio, um, I was actually surprised because it seems like you do have a really large base for your corporate practice and that, you know, you'll read certain bios that it's, it would be all funds. It might, it might be all investment management. The word M&A may never appear or all M&A, the word funds is not going to show up or all financing. So I just think it's really interesting that it seems like you have a really you know, broad, but also deep bench of knowledge in all those areas. And it's, and it's not always a given. I think there are a lot of corporate lawyers who could give some good advice on many of those things, but I, I, I do get a sense that you're a little bit unique with the scope. Yeah, th- I think that that's right. I think that and it's, and it's, I think that it makes a lot of sense to specialize and there are a lot of people who, who do and do it very well. I think that I've been f- very fortunate, both very fortunate as well as, as humble enough. If, if I, if I'm wading into an area that is not within my bandwidth, I have zero problems bringing other people. And that's, a, you know, that's great. That was part of the things that actually was very attractive to me about Foley, because if someone is doing, you know, a fund that's might actually buy into commodities or derivatives, certainly I know how to put together all the fund documentation to form it. But if they need to have certain regulatory requirements uh, as a commodity pool operator, for example, or they need to make sure they're re- registered with the CFTC for certain things that you know, have nothing to do with the, the SEC, which is the, the securities regulatory body, um, it's really, really nice to have a lot of people here that can bring that expertise to bear that I, you know, I didn't have that before. And so a lot of, a lot of that stuff I had to outsource but it, that you know you mentioned sort of empathy i just never would ever want my clients to kind of feel like they're ever if they're hiring me i they need to trust that i know what i'm talking about and except i don't i'm the first one to tell them we need to bring somebody else in to, to make sure that we have to navigate this particular aspect correctly and so that's been really really great well and i feel like your philosophy and just some of the things you've touched on also really mesh well with foley's client philosophy <laughs> and um this is where i think to people who aren't a law firm it can start sounding very like corporate whatever speak but this is this is very true in that it's very important to Foley for us to remember that we are dealing with people. I know it's the big name of some multi-million dollar whatever but who you are serving who your client is is people and it seems to me like like you've understood that throughout your career and I get it it sounds obvious at the end of the day we're all just people but I don't know do you have a sense of where that came from or when it clicked with you of like oh I really should understand that I'm helping a person and that means a lot. Yeah, no, I think I think you you're spot on, and I think you know as part of my careers before, you know, doing serving communities or doing customer service, even at businesses, I think that it, it is it's really lost a lot of people, and I, I encourage you know when I get the chance to do recruiting, you know, I, I, you know, I think that it's very easy for people to kind of think, oh, you're a lawyer. So that means, you know, you must really kind of love being in the library and, and, you know, understand exactly what, you know, what code CFC, you know, CFR 270.137 says. And that stuff, it's a part of the job, but I actually think it's actually a much smaller aspect of it. If you have a client that's really struggling and they don't they don't feel comfortable sort of sharing the whole scoop with you, number one, you're not going to serve them well. But number two, like you're putting them at a distinct disadvantage. I mean, they're just they're not they're not going to be able to get whatever it is that they're trying to achieve unless you actually really kind of focus in on them. And sometimes that means you have to really be direct with them and say, you know, look. If you really want to do this, this just doesn't make any sense to me. And I, because I can't wrap my head around why you would ever want to, you know, why are we buying into the building that's been burnt down and and et cetera and everything, and then paying them to do like if something sounds funky, yeah, um, I'm always willing to learn about some new stuff, but I'm also not willing to be kind of complicit. Anything seems funky, and I think that people actually respect it a lot. And again, may, maybe I like to think I tell people I'm, I'm too simple minded to to kind of let myself get like all like worked up in the tizzy over over strange things and so if i'm not the right lawyer like please please please, please. that's fine you're like that's fine we'll that's find fine. you a better one <laughs> find anything um and and that's worked out really and it's worked out well so far 
Well, and I also think what you're getting at, at least to me, it makes me think about that transition between a from associate to partner. And I think early in a legal career, it, it's very it can be very easy, particularly depending on the size of your firm and the size of the matters you're on, for it to feel sort of academic, right? Because when you first start that first year, they're not like, hey, call the client and then send this to them. And no, like it can feel like this yes. is. Yeah, um, it's different from law school, but uh, this isn't that real. <laughs> no, absolutely. There was there was a big pressure that I put on myself, at least early on. I don't remember saying it outward. I don't really remember sort of constantly thinking about that much. But because I was older, it wasn't at all unusual for me to be working on matters with people who were much younger than me. There were, there were partners who were my age when I walked in the door. And so at least sort of socially, I felt like their peer. And so it became important to me that at least, again, that from my perspective, in my sphere, whatever it was, that I kind of felt like I fully owned that. So there are many transactions. We're got fantastic associates here. And like, there are many, many transactions to work on where they are much, much closer to actually what's actually going on. And so I always encourage them, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I made early in my career was a partner gave me his comments to a merger agreement that we were working on. And I just sort of, I just folded them in wholesale as is and just said, okay, well, you know, he's been doing this for 30 years. So they must be fantastic. And then afterward, they were completely wrong. And he said, well, why would you, why did you put these in there? And I said, well, cause I work for you and you put these in. And so right. I, you're the word of God, like, you know, what's supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. And so I never forget that. And I always tell associates, like, if I send you anything that seems borderline stupid, you know, that's a terrible word, but if it just seems like I'm like really out of touch with something or anything, like, don't ever hesitate to kind of say, are you sure? Are you sure that you're sure that you're sure that you want to put that? You're getting to some really, I think, just core advice. It's interesting because there is that age dynamic there. And we don't talk about it a ton in law firms. We probably should talk about it more. But there is, you know, when you start and you're, I don't know, for you, you're a bit older, probably into your 30s, but a lot of new lawyers are like 25, 26, 27. You might be working with a partner who's been doing this for 30 years. And you can kind of drop into like, you know, I'm the student, you're the teacher, whatever you say, I will do it. And there is a there is a place for that. But also when you're interviewing with these firms, you have to realize, ideally, these partners are going to also see you as peers and they are relying on you and they need you to feel confident questioning them. And some of the most difficult dynamics I've actually seen in law firms involve people who naturally do not sound confident. So I could get away with a lot because I just sound confident. I'm like, the sky is purple, Clyde. Put it in the brief. It's fine. I mean, granted, I shouldn't do that. But when you show that you're not confident. And I mean, there's still a lot to learn. So I'm not saying to have too much swagger, but to that partner, they're like, but you tell me if this was wrong, right? Like you would tell me if you think that I'm doing something wrong because they're actually relying on you. So you you do have to have that ability to be like, Clyde, I don't know if you meant this markup, but here's my concern. And Clyde will be like, I meant it or I did it. <laughs> yeah. It's critical. It's critical. There's that Malcolm Gladwell book where he talked about I think I forget which airline it was, but there was a particular airline, and they had an unusual high incident of of accidents. And when they sort of when he sort of peeled back the banana, as only he would do, it just turned out that there was sort of a cultural bias, and that yeah, there's just a fear of sort of speaking to your your elders to say, no, we need to turn left, not right into the middle of that mountain. And so, fortunately, I didn't want to have any. After I got over not being a doctor, I didn't want to have any any job that avoided you know like life or death. But I try to really, really encourage people, like, you're right. Like, even if you don't feel comfortable telling me, you know, like, fake it until you do feel comfortable. Like, please, I'm begging you, tell me if I'm if I'm missing something. Because, again, there's no distinction on the invoices. No, there's, no, there's no line that says, you know, junior lawyer or, you know, unconfident lawyer or, you know, soon, mm-hmm. you know, it, you know, the clients. All lawyer. Pay. Yeah. Well, and we're, we're also just busy people juggling a lot. And I think what I actually tell associates is I need you to have some, back to this empathy term, I need you to be empathetic for the partners and the more senior lawyers you work with. I need you to try to have some context around what their lives look like. And it can feel like, because particularly when you've been practicing a long time, there's a lot of stuff that you and so many of our partners know cold. You'll be like, pull section, sub, whatever. And they're like, how did you know that? Because I've been doing it for you know 20 years, whatever. But there's other things where you're busy, you have multiple deals, you have a life, and you're also not a machine. 
and that it's nice to rely on your colleague to catch. So definitely. And also, but raising that dynamic, I do want to ask, you know, you are a blackmail partner at a large law firm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Before we jumped on, we were joking a bit about how I think in general, you know, some people may have certain perceptions of what um, Milwaukee office is like, what diversity is like. And I don't even know if you have much to share in that, but I feel like I should just raise the question because I think some people are curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a fantastic question. And it's something I think about all the time. There are times when you can and may feel like like a unicorn or whatever. I mean, like you do fairly sort of feel rare. Oh, like when the AMLA numbers come out, when like the American lawyer and they're like, (laughs) (laughs) black male, black partners are less than, black equity partners are less than I think half a percent within within big law firms yeah, yeah. so it's an, it's like it, it's insanely low and so it can be daunting on the other hand i think there's additional visibility associated with that kind of cuts both ways when things are going really really well it feels like things are going really really well because they're like well the unicorn is he's coming through <laughs> yeah, whatever. on the other hand if things are going bad it probably goes there i've been fortunate at this point there hasn't been too much of the latter category but what i think is really neat about milwaukee in particular and, and and actually bridges to madison is that the legal community particularly among um you know black men is is very very close and so you know while i'm at foley and, and have a you know i've you know i have two uh, black partners in my office, whatever. But I, I think that it's it's also neat that you know partners in other firms, you know, like reach out to me. So when I when I you know was, when I first joined Foley, it, there was a article that was ran in the local newspaper, and to have both lawyers at other firms as well as just other professionals, so bank different bankers in the city, to reach out to kind of really sort of embrace me was I can't tell you how much that meant initially. Again, I was sort of breaking off a 10-year relationship with a, with a mentor that meant a lot to me. And there, was, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't an, an opportunity without any risk. It was certainly kind of new. But to have folks reach out and say, you know, look, I'm rooting for you to do really well there. Foley, in particular Milwaukee, is, you know, is a very, very well-known firm with a, you know, fantastic reputation. So for them to say, you know, look, we know it means something for you to be joining there. And, and you know, we want you to be, you know, very successful. And again, even local politicians, I mean, I'm a, again, I'm, I'm more of like a homebody. I'm not one for doing a whole heck of a lot of schmoozing, but I was really, really pleased the fact that people reached out and they and actually, it drew me out to be more and more involved in the community than I even was before. And I love, I love hearing about those offers of support because I think regardless of your demographics, like being a lawyer in any given city, it becomes, it starts to feel small after a while. I don't care if you're in Chicago, New York, Milwaukee. And generally, I think most people are pretty collegial and will offer to help people, but hearing about the support of the Black community. And I know, I know the Chicago Black lawyer community gets it on that too, in in terms of offering support is really, really wonderful. And a, a part of it, in addition to just firms doing more to support people, you know, like through the work of myself and our broader talent team and our, our management committee and all that, there is also like understanding that it's okay to lean on others and to ask people for help. And I hope, Clyde, when some of those people emailed you, I hope a few of them, you're like, you know what? Can we jump on the phone? I would like your insight. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. Because you you can't possibly, you know, you can't possibly know everything or even in your diligence process, you know, as diligent as you want to be, just knowing where the landmines are. And, and, and I should, it's worth mentioning that there are a lot of other colleagues that are not Black that also, you know, also extended all branches. And it was so much appreciated because, you know, again, sort of coming in, I thought I was, you know, kind of walking into like a really, I'll just be in the office forever and I'll be, you know, I'll never have to kind of work remotely again. And, you know, and I guess wrong on that front, but it was, but it was really kind of good to kind of have people bring in and sort of, you know, people reaching out, even again, associates call reaching out, hey, can we have coffee and just sort of chop it up? You know, or I'm thinking about doing this, I'm thinking about doing that. I really, really, it was a neat experience to kind of to transition in and, and, and Foley's, they're, Foley's good at that. And as we wind, wind down, and I want to hear a little bit more about that. Foley's good at that part. Um, our last few minutes, I would love for you to elaborate that. So, so what is Foley like? Like, how how's it been these past couple of years? Just you know, I don't know, thirty seconds or so on that. Yeah, yeah, no. So Foley is a pretty good place because they're, they're very deliberate about they're deliberate about things that every firm I think aspires to do. So, you know, if someone thinks that you know, so she's kind of have like a, sort of a clear path to kind of what what that's going to look like. Folio map it out and they'll sort of, they'll sort of, you know, they'll tie the exact, you know, specific markers. Okay. We can't 
promise anyone that this will be the perfect firm for them, but at least they have like sort of, at least sort of some transparency as if I kind of, what does the path look like? And I, I, I think we take it for granted here, but the, I've worked at firms that that just hasn't been the case. Yeah. Well, that interest, and I think just the way the firm runs and our demographics and our, frankly, our associate to partner ratio being what it is, generally the firm's like, if you're here, there's a path for you. I mean, you have to decide if you like the work and if that's a path that you're willing to do, different question, but there is a path. There isn't always one. Um, And my last few questions for you, Clyde, are, one, is there anything you wanted to touch on that you haven't gotten the opportunity to? And then after that, what is your overall advice? You've given a ton of great advice, but sort of your parting words to a junior lawyer or to, to a law student on a legal career. Yeah, no, I, I think the best piece of advice I always can give to people and, and encourage people to do all the time is always like to, you know, keep things in perspective. I don't mean insignificantly when I say, you know, this is not life or death. And there will there'll be a lot of moments you're, you're definitively going to make mistakes. There have been, I've had numerous sort of episodes and, and, and things where things didn't go as well as planned. One of my favorite incidents was with a, a partner that I greatly admire at a firm. And I did a deal. It was already closed. We were on a conference call with a client and there was something that I I neglected in, as part of the closing that the client wasn't aware of it. And the partner screamed at me for probably 20 minutes while we're on the phone with the client. So the client would you know, go and glowing and be like, oh my gosh. And then Clyde did this. And it was so fantastic and everything. And, and then the partner would say, oh my gosh, you're right. We love Clyde. And then he put on mute and scream at me for- Oh my God. And then he was only taking breaks. So, so we That's like out of a movie. Okay, but go on. <laughs> off, you know, go on mute or whatever. And it would have been very easy at that point to either A, to sort of throw the partner out the window or, or, or B, to say, I'm, I'm done with this, whatever and neither would have been the right path. I think that, you know, you can't take yourself too seriously. It's it's good to work hard and you should definitely, obviously, and everything kind of work to be your best. But that presence of mind to kind of put things in context, I think that it's really, this profession is sort of fraught with a lot of stress and a lot of people who who need to be able to kind of, you know, tap into resources. And so whether it be professional resources, whether it be just friends and family, kind of, you know, keeping that perspective and keeping that balance, I think is really, really critical. No, I think that's exactly right. Back to that empathy. For some reason, that's our theme this episode. Don't know why. But with that, Clyde, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Final, final question. If a listener has comments or questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send Absolutely. you an email? Absolutely. I would love it. I would love to hear from anyone. This is, this is really, really, really neat. My buddy has, is now doing podcasts with like Marley Marl and some some, 80s, some 80s rappers and everything. And so this is as close as I'm going to get to that. But for this affable nerd, this is all good. Send him this and see if he'll just have you on as like, you know, sidekick commentary. <laughs> Thank you so much, Clyde. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.